All right. Greetings, Catholics and infidels. I'd like to welcome you to a special edition of Mafashi Bookshelf, featuring our esteemed author, E. Michael Jones, who has authored numerous books, for example, Libido Dominandi, Slaughter of Cities, and the book we're going to be hyper-focused on, Baron Metal, A History of Usury. Uh, anybody looking to reach out to him and purchase his books, you could go to culturewars.com. And he's also on Gab. So how are you today? Good. Good to be here. Yeah, I finally finished your book. Took me a couple months, but it was worth it. Uh, I wish I would have read this a couple years ago when I first received it as a Christmas present. It's illuminating. It contradicted a lot of the memes, a lot of the things I've heard other people say on a on the internet, on uh, podcasts, and uh, yeah, just overall illuminating work. I was actually planning on reading Gibbon's book on the Roman Empire before I read yours, and I figured, you know, my economics isn't all that good. I should pick up this book. I'm glad I did because uh, Edward Gibbon's whole thing on the decline of the Roman Empire was Catholicism. He blamed it on Catholicism, and you contradict that and actually say that it uh, it, it prolonged the empire. So I thought that was interesting. The only thing that uh, allowed the empire to continue was Catholicism. The empire collapsed because of usury. Uh, Gibbon Gibbon uh, is classic Whig history. Blame the Catholic Church for everything uh, that the Protestant Reformation brought about. Uh, and, uh, that's in one sense why I had to write this book. I'm, I, I, I get letters from people all, all the time. A lot of people, uh, group, a lot of these people are Protestants. A lot of these people feel that they have been abandoned. They feel that their world is falling apart. Uh, a lot of them, uh, now talk about themselves as being white because they don't lack, they lack that Protestant identity. I've said many times that a Protestant is a, is a, uh, I'm sorry, a white guy is a Protestant who doesn't go to church anymore. That's the type of crisis that these people are experiencing. And what, what they see as religious is really economic. And I cover that in this book, uh, Baron Metal, when I talk about the Protestant Reformation, when I describe it as a looting operation, which is pretty much all it was. And yeah. a lot of these people absorb uh, what that what they're what they call economics is really a form of their religion. Uh, and at that point, there are certain points in this book where that is exactly what happened, where the transfer becomes obvious. One of them is the uh, story about uh, the uh, the natives of uh, the Micmac Indians on Nova Scotia who had become uh, Catholic and married intermarried with the French. For after two centuries of Catholicism, uh, the British, uh, French lost Canada uh, to the British. Uh, and then the Presbyterians came over to bring Jesus Christ to the Mi'kmaq Indians. Well, uh, they were about two centuries too late. Uh, uh, the Mi'kmaq, uh, the, the French, uh, I'm sorry, the, the, uh, the Presbyterians refused to speak even French, much less Mi'kmaq in contradistinction to the Jesuits who learned Mi'kmaq so that they could preach the gospel and wrote a Mi'kmaq uh, uh, grammar and, and uh, dictionary. Yeah. Uh, but but what we're talking about here is what they called uh, Presbyterianism was really capitalism. 
that's what had happened over this period of time that you yes. had this you got the religious sanction uh, of uh, given to an economic system that was ruthlessly exploitative and became the basis the uh, grammar for the expansion of the uh, British Empire. Okay, Mr. Jones, could we? Uh, I'd like to rewind a little bit because your book. Usually, when people think of, uh, for example, paganism or Christianity, they think the spiritual side. And your book uh, it illustrates actually the the economics. So I was very intrigued by this. With my Roman studies, I actually uh, cut them short for the time being, and I picked up your book, and it pretty much initiated on the whole Medici era. And uh, it, it illustrates numerous things. One, one of the things it contradicted the memes, for example, I thought that uh, usury was uh, exclusively Jewish phenomenon. And as I'm reading this book, you find out that, no, actually, there was plenty of Christian usurers and they were actually worse than the Jewish ones because they would charge you 70 percent interest, whereas the uh, Jewish usurers would charge you like 30 or sometimes if they were being nice, 20 percent. So, I mean, this book really contradicted many narratives for me. But could you go back because I, I, th this is crucial. Could you explain um, pagan economics and then explain uh, Catholic economics? I mean, because this is something nobody ever really takes into consideration. I found this to be fascinating. Pagan economics. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure there is such a thing. If you're talking about the economic system during the time of the Roman Empire, what you saw was the progress of usury. But metal reduces all of economic history to two principles. It's either labor is the source of all value or it's usury. Labor is the Catholic alternative. Usury became the Jewish alternative because they were excluded from other, other types of trades. So if you're talking about the rise of the, let's, let's put this, if you're talking about the crucial transition from the Roman Republic to the Roman Empire, it was basically usury that created this transition because over this period of time you had uh, in, in the Republic, uh, you, uh, the, the citizens were soldiers. If you were a Roman citizen, you had a duty to serve in the army at your own expense. And so these were farmers for the most part. This was the model of America, Cincinnati, uh, the farmer who became the general and then went back to being a farmer. That was George Washington. Uh, and these people were went off and and as the wars expanded the people uh the the they abused this uh this desire on the part of the citizen to serve in the army because uh they were ever expanding uh conquering more and more people and the more people they conquered the more they soldiers they needed and the more longer the soldier had to serve until finally the soldier could not maintain his farm anymore and at that point, the farms were bought up by uh, big landowners, and they were known as latifundia. And so over this period of time, you have usury expanding. Whenever usury expands, it does so at the expense of labor. These people were uh, the, the Roman citizen was no longer able to maintain his own farm, his own livelihood. He had to become a soldier, and then uh, as a soldier, he became a slave, uh, a debt slave, and eventually a literal slave, uh, working on his what used to be his own property, but now had been absorbed into a huge uh, agribusiness operation as a slave uh, because, of, because of the expansion of usury. That's the real story of the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, and this whole uh, 
rise and fall uh, that uh, that book you just mentioned. Gibbons. Gibbons book is all just weak history. Black legend. It's not the real story. uh, Yeah, I haven't I haven't. I haven't picked it up yet. I have the first, uh, I have the first edition. It's like three books, first half of it. Have you actually read any, have you read the Gibbons work on the Roman empire by chance? I've read parts of it, but not the whole thing. Okay. All right. Uh, the, can we rewind a little bit, uh, a little bit more? Let's go back to the whole, um, the, the Greek mentality on labor and how labor was for slaves and how, um, how the Catholics essentially, uh, granted unity through a work ethic and uh, how, how like the, the slaves actually became the middle class and all that stuff. Uh, that was so intriguing. <clears throat> yeah, the uh, Greeks, the great uh, Greek miracle of Plato and Aristotle could only take place because the work was done by slaves. Uh, in, the work in Athens was done by slaves. Uh, so that freed up the people. Aristotle said at one point uh, that uh, no one who had to work for a living could be a citizen of Athens because you had to spend all your time going to meetings. This was fundamental basic democracy or uh, the, it, even before it became a fully blown democracy. It was a place where pe- the Greeks got together and they talked as opposed to the Persians, who were their great enemy at this point, who uh, basically were docile to an emperor who acted on dreams rather than on discussions. Um, So, yeah, you had to you couldn't work. And so as a result, you had this uh, you this combined or maybe it gave birth to it's hard to say. But you had this platonic attitude toward the world where the world was completely meaningless flux. And the only way out of it was to basically rise above the world uh, of everyday life into the world of platonic forms. Uh, And then you would contemplate these platonic forms. This had uh, a devastating effect on art, which I cover in my book, The Dangers of Beauty. It also had a devastating effect on the economy because it's basically anti-labor. What you're saying is that labor is worthless. The only purpose that it serves is uh, to provide leisure, otium liberale was the word that uh, St. Augustine used, uh, so that you could contemplate timeless forms. Augustine tried it. He tried to be a Platonist, failed miserably because of his own concupiscence. But at that point, you didn't need to do it anymore because you, the soul didn't have to rise up because God came down. Uh, and we're talking about the incarnation and the effect that Jesus Christ had the incarnation on sanctifying labor. It sanctified this world. This world was not meaningless flex. There was a logos to this world because it was created. Neither Plato nor, nor Aristotle knew that the world was created. If it's created, they're going to be traced. God is an artist. And if God is an artist, he's going to leave traces of his artistry, of his mind in nature. And you could discover if you were an artist by mimesis by imitating nature or you could discover it as a scientist by trying to abstract the laws uh, which is what Pythagoras began uh, by his uh, numerical theories but which had found this culmination in Italy at the same time that you had the great period of Italian art and I'm talking about Galileo this Uh is all a function of the incarnation and one of the other functions of the incarnation is that it gave value. It recognized the value of human labor. 
that not only was uh, labor was the source of all value. That meant that uh, that's all you need. In a sense, that's all you need for an economy. All you need is to value labor. And that would reach fruition uh, um, over a millennium uh, later through Germany, because it was in Germany, which is the successor to the Ro Holy Roman, the Roman Empire. The Holy Roman Empire is another word for German, all those German principalities. And this is where the ideas slowly emerge during the course of the uh, Middle Ages. So basically, after the collapse of the Roman Empire, you've got a situation where your main issue is security, because at this point, the government has collapsed. And you've got these marauding uh, German tribes, my ancestors, uh, who are crossing the Rhine and the Danube, and they're pillaging. And so you needed someone to protect you, and the guy who protected you was the one with the castle, and he was the lord, and basically you sold your independence to the lord for security, and you became a serf. Uh, and that was the, the story in the Middle Ages. But over this period of time, these people who worked the land, who now had the dignity of being Christians, and uh, uh, an inchoate and ever-developing understanding that labor was the source of value, gradually began to have tenure over the land, de facto tenure. Now, uh, that was a gradual process, and the main thing that interrupted it, uh, Pache, Mr. Gibbons, was the Reformation. Up in England or in the German principality, let's let's focus on England for a moment. Okay. Uh, we had purgatory societies where basically the Lord uh, would grant use of the land, but not ownership of the land to certain people on the condition that they prayed for his soul. So you could graze your sheep on his property uh, if you prayed for his soul. That was a great symbiotic relationship. England, up to the time of the Reformation, was proceeding toward a culture uh, of, uh, of prosperity, largely because of the ameliorating effect that the church had on uh, aristocrats, on the Lord, who gradually became a collaborator with serf labor, as they became more and more independent, as they gained more and more rights. All of that was abrogated by the Reformation, which was nothing but a looting operation. In, yeah, Engl that, in England, it was a looting operation with absolutely no theological justification whatsoever. In Germany, it was a looting operation with theological justification, largely pro provided by uh, Martin Luther. Yeah, Martin Luther was a total mistake. However, the Catholic Church played a crucial role in this. Uh, you mentioned in the book that how capitalism actually got its start during uh, during the time when the Medici's were actually running things through the banks down there. At, um, yeah. Uh, now, if you, if you want to talk about the Medici, you're talking about the return of paganism. Yeah, exactly. During the Reformation or uh, during the Renaissance, I found that to be very uh, appealing. That that whole uh, the way that you illustrated that, how uh, they refused to pay the workers enough, and they brought back usury and alchemy Absol and, um, and, and 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 the Kabbalah, and they imported some Greeks to furtherly help them. And there was a lot of bread and circus going on, i.e., Renaissance, and all this was was a distraction and a lie. It was a deception where they were telling them. Oh, we're emancipating you with all this uh, libido, these libidinous poets and um, 
and music and uh, sodomy. But meanwhile, they were enslaved. They couldn't they couldn't afford to pay the Medici's who needed a, who had a rapacious appetite, who needed to fund their wars. So they overtaxed the citizens and the citizens. Yeah, but, they, but, they, they, they funneled in the Jews to get well, the wait, wait, let's stop. Let's stop. Go back to the beginning. How did the Medici first earn enough money to start a bank? How did they do that? They got involved in cloth, cloth yeah. manufacturing. I was going to say wool. I was going to say wool, but I guess I was well, mistaken. It went, it went from wool to silk over a period of time, but it started off as wool. And uh, this is, according to Pesch, by the way, my book is based on the principles of Heinrich Pesch's Lehrbuch der Nationalökonomie. Okay. But Heinrich Pesch says that wool was the basis of the European money economy. Yeah. As it, wool the manufacture of cloth allowed Europe to emerge from a kind of subsistence economy into a money economy. And the transition took place precisely at the time of the Medici. Italy was way ahead of everyone in this regard. Italy was the paradigm of advanced art, advanced economic theory, advanced mm -hmm. every, everything. And you, yeah. you can see this in, in the way Shakespeare simply admires everything Italian. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the and the Fuggers or I think that's how you say that the, the Fuggers, they went down there to Italy to actually get traded and uh, trained in their craft. Right. So now you have uh, the, the, the transition. So to to, to, to the Medici, uh, as soon as you get involved in usury, bankruptcy is just over the horizon. And it's only a matter of time because you lend your money. Who are you going to lend it to? You're going to lend it to princes. And the princes are going to default. You can count on it. Yeah. Uh, and the only way you can prevent a default is by having a bigger army than the prince. And the bank did not have an army. The Medici bank did not have an army. So it lasted for a while. And it was like this glorious, uh, it's like the light bulb just before it burns out, gets real bright. Well, that was uh, Florence during the time uh, of the, the end of the uh, 15th century. Yeah. Uh, and this was the time when uh, Lorenzo, Lorenzo, the magnificent Lorenzo Medici uh, finally comes to power and he looks at the books and he realized we're in trouble. We're not we're insolvent. What I'll do is I'll try to distract everyone from the fact that the bank is insolvent. And so he resurrected Carnival and the big project was basically known as the Renaissance. Uh, the 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 main one of the people who was his one of his main propagandists was Botticelli, who would yep. do uh, posters for him. But he he was the one who came up with the the image of the Renaissance. Florence is the city of flowers. Yeah. Firenze Fiorentina is the Latin word. So it's the city of flowers. And there's the uh, spring, Primavera, yeah. the famous painting by Botticelli. Uh, and uh, that's the that's the emblem of uh, the return of paganism. This is the springtime. What do you mean springtime? It's the return of paganism to Florence. And the man, the crucial figure is all to the left uh, standing there. And it's Lorenzo. And he's got the caduceus, yep. which is the symbol of Mercury, who is the messenger of the gods. And he's stirring the clouds because he's what the what we would now call a rainmaker. He's the guy who makes it happen. Uh, and uh, without Lorenzo, there would be no Renaissance because it was his money that was was doing it. Uh, it was a, a, a time of decadence and the the infallible sign that you're living in a decadent culture is the rise of sodomy and yeah. usury. Yep. Sodomy. 
And that's exactly what happened in Florida. And guess what? Hey, hey, I know another place where sodomy and usury is being promoted. (laughs) (laughs) It's our decadent culture. So it's a sign that we are at the end here. We are in the end times, certainly of the American empire. Everybody knows that. Anybody who's not completely besotted by American propaganda knows that it's the end time. But there are advantages, as uh, Hegel said, the Euler der Minerva fliegt erst by einbrechende Dämmerung. The owl of Minerva fleeg, only flies or flies you, uh, at, flies at the beginning of twilight. So what he meant is when the empire goes into a phase of twilight, it starts to break up. And when it breaks up, the official narrative collapses and then wisdom arises out of people who are coming up with the true narrative. So that's what's happening now. That's what happened then. The man who could have saved the world was Savonarola, who uh, yeah. a, a, a reformer, a monk, uh, order of preachers. Did they kill him? He, he was killed, right? Yes, he was killed. He was so he brought about reform. Uh, the reform uh, he had. He was famous for his bonfire of the vanities. Yeah. Yeah. Which is basically you take uh, have a big pile of uh, everything that's leading you into sin, all the occasions of sin. You throw it there on the, the bonfire and we'll set it on fire. Throw a little yeah. uh, gunpowder in it makes a spectacular fire. And apparently Botticelli threw some of his paintings on there. Uh, mm-hmm. And we're supposed to think that was terrible. But he was probably involved in doing pornography because that's when it started to rear its ugly head. Uh, and so it was part of a religious reform. And if you notice the paintings that Botticelli made after this, they're much more severe. Uh, and it, they're all, uh, one of them is clearly uh, an allegorical reference to the death of Savonarola and the deadly effect it had. So which one? Which which one? You know, you remember? Because I'm lost over here. I have a bunch of his. Uh, it's, paintings it's the one. It's the one with the uh, Apuleius, which is the ass's ear. There's something with that there. I, I don't I'm drawing a blank about the title of the painting. Uh, all right. Uh, but you'll find it if you look at uh, la- the later paintings of. Uh, of yeah, I, I, I have his, I have his whole catalog, so I'll look at it once I'm done talking. It'll be the end toward the end. You'll okay. find it toward the end. All right. Good enough. So that was the gr- that was the great moment. Of reform, uh, the Medici conspired with Pope Alexander VI to have uh Savonarola murdered because they wanted to, they were getting rich from sodomy and usury. And at that point, uh, they, the chance passed the next time around, it's going to be much more severe. And that was precisely when Pope uh, Leo X, who was a Medici, uh, was on the seat of Peter. And he heard that there was a quarrel of what he called a quarrel among monks in Germany. That was known as the reformation. And that broke the unity of Christendom and opened the door for state-sponsored usury, yep. which is the definition of capitalism. Yeah, Martin Luther made a, yeah, I mean, in retrospect, he was a disaster for, yeah, the, just the unity of our people in general. But, I mean, the, the Catholic Church was playing its own role in this with the indulgences and their degeneracy and their affiliation with the Medicis and everything else. I mean, they they kind of accelerated it so i guess there was, was no que- there's no question that the church was in a state of decadence at that point 
There were cardinals who were fabulously wealthy, who were basically uh, putting their money under the control of the Jews, the Jewish users, because they could get a 20% return on their investment, which is unheard of, uh, because the Jews, once you allow them into the kingdom, would charge 43 and a third percent to the normal uh, uh, borrower. So there, there was uh, the decadence was there I, in, in in slaughter of I'm sorry in the dangers of beauty I talk about uh, the reform that took place with the uh, Vatican uh, the Council of Trent uh, okay. where there was a reform they had to decide whether are we going to allow art even though it's tending toward pornography and they did they set up guidelines that basically set the stage for the great achievement that is European art beginning with the Italians. Uh, but the uh, the Germans uh, didn't want to hear about it. I, I In my lecture on the dangers of beauty, I talk about uh, the looting when the German mercenaries did not get paid. They looted Rome, I believe it was eight, 1525, and they stabled their horses in the Sistine Chapel. And I guarantee you, they never saw anything like this in Germany. And I think they were appalled. Uh, yeah. In another chapel, one of these soldiers carved the name Martin Luther into the wall. So we know what his sympathies were like. When they got back to Germany, the iconoclasm conflict broke out. And the Fugger family was intimately involved in this iconoclasm uh, battle. This was where the the, uh, the usury chickens had come home to roost. The Fuggers, uh, unlike the Medici, the Fuggers did have some sense that they needed to pay the worker a decent wage, that the welfare of the worker was yeah. something that the Fuggers were interested in, probably because they were German, because yeah. this tradition of honoring labor has never died out in Germany to this day, even though it's under severe threat because of the Amer American imperialism right now. But it was always part of the German understanding, the German Catholic understanding that labor was the source of all value. Yeah, the the the, uh, the Fuggers actually built uh they, they built a bunch of buildings for their workers. Workers, uh, they, they, worker housing in Augsburg. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they paid them a very a, a just wage. These people were actually able to sustain families and procreate, and yeah, it, it made sense to me. Yeah, and that's precisely what the Medici did not do. Yeah, in in exactly. Florence, if you yeah. don't pay, if you don't pay a family wage within two generations, you will have no workforce. Because yeah. the workers cannot reproduce themselves. And that's precisely what happened to Florence. You go to Florence today, it's a museum. Well, it was a, a thriving city-state uh, where they had a thriving cloth industry. And because the Medici refused to pay a decent wage, uh, that died. You know, So we have like the, the, the skeleton. Uh, and believe me, there's lots of magnificent art there, including that uh, yeah. Michelangelo's David in the public square. Yeah, uh, which is going to be the uh, we're going to have a discussion on uh, beauty uh, two weeks, uh, no, a week and a half from now on my Friday podcast. And that's going to be the good. centerpiece of the discussion. Good. So there was some good that came out of it, but it died as an industrial power uh, because they wouldn't pay a decent wage. Yeah, yeah, it did. All right. Can we uh, can we transition over to uh, the whole Protestant question? Because uh, a lot of the things that I thought were like, for example, um. 
uh, Jewish capitalism is actually Protestant capitalism. And like I said, this book just really shifted the paradigm for me. I mean, the complete opposite uh, side of the spectrum. So can we uh, can we expound on that? Yeah. Now, first of all, uh, Luther. First of all, what you're talking about are uh, Protestants who are Judaizers. And this happened very quickly. But Luther was not part of that. Luther uh, thought that he was so eloquent that the Jews would convert immediately after hearing his eloquence. And it didn't happen. And when it didn't happen, he got very angry and wrote that treatise on the (laughs) Jews at the end of his life, uh, which was basically a violation of the Catholic principle of secret Judaeus non who wanted to enslave them all and punish harm the Jew. And the Lutherans are still apologizing for that to this day. But once you break the unity, uh, you're going to, once you move away from Catholic principle as the basis for your culture, you are going to be ruled by Jews. It's that simple. And it's not me that's saying this. It was that three-part series in Civiltà Cattolica that came out in the 1890s, 1890, I believe, The uh, as a as a kind of analysis of the results of the French Revolution, which was not primarily a Jewish revolution, although the Jews were involved. The Jews were involved in every revolution. But if you break away from the laws uh, created by Christen, uh, uh, the Church of Jesus Christ, you will end up being ruled by Jews. And that is the story of Protestantism in a nutshell. Well, okay? hold on, hold on, hold on a sec, because it wasn't initially like that, am I right? Like the Jews came in later on. That's that's actually what I liked about this book, because I'm still suffering from Jew fatigue over here. Was the Jews didn't really make an appearance till the rise of the Rothschilds and what right. the 18th, you're right. 18th century. So uh, right. the the Protestant, the Protestant Revolution actually happened during the Renaissance. So I mean, there was no Jews originally involved at that. The 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 actor, the main actor, were the lower nobility. And uh, the classic example of that in Germany was uh, Ulrich von Hutten, who was being his his pri- his privileges as an aristocrat were being eroded by the rise of families like the Fuggers, the merchant families who were making a lot more money than these impecunious uh, aristocrats. That was the symbol. Uh, he was a man, a supporter of the uh, Reformation uh, in Germany and the German principalities. It was the same thing was true in England. It was a fortiori true. In England, it was nothing but looting, nothing. There was no theological justification. It was the aristocrats. Once the power of Rome had been broken, the aristocrats saw their chance. And they kind of shoved Henry VIII aside and started looting uh, looting the church property. They couldn't resist it. Okay, now you loot this church property. If you want to know the the inside story here, uh, watch Timon of Athens and you'll see how this transition took place because. okay, you got the property, but you want to have a good time. How do you translate the property into a good time? Because the property entails responsibility and it entails responsibility. You have to you need labor to bring wealth out of that property. There's no other way. Oh, wait a minute. There is another way, but we'll get to that. So you have to have a workforce and you have to take care of that workforce and and, and make sure that they are uh, productive and happy before you can get wealth. Well, what's the shortcut, especially after you're a looter? This is what this is the English heritage. They're always uh, canonizing looters. 
Sir Francis Drake is the classic example. The pirate. The pirate plays an integral part in English history because they had the navy that would allow them to loot the, the Spanish main. So you're basically a pirate. You got this property. How do you get money immediately like that? Well, you put a mortgage on the property. And the Jews are the money lenders. We don't, I don't know who they were. I don't know who they were at this point. But there were money lenders, and they came in as the second generation after the looting lords stole the property. And then the looting lords lost all their property because they couldn't keep up with interest payments. And if you want the inside story, it's Timon of Athens, but a Shakespeare's okay. play. And not a, a, com, a, a popular play for Shakespeare, but a very interesting play. Uh, because um, whenever Shakespeare is writing about ancient Greece, you know he's talking about Elizabethan England because he had to do something to get past the censors. And that was the story. The lords mortgaged their properties and then within a generation, they lost it and fell into the hands of the usurers or the powerful families that could uh, work with the usurers. And so the Cecil family, the Russell family, people like that. Uh, Cromwell, the Cromwell, yeah, Cromwell family. He was a bastard, that guy, man. So that's that's they were able to hang on to the property, uh, but most of the most of the looters did not, and that's how we're talking about the rise of capitalism because capitalism is state-sponsored usury. So how did they do this? How do you uh, deal with uh, usury? Well, uh, looting again. And so Sir Francis Drake, whom I mentioned, uh, sailed around the world and just sank one Spanish ship after another and stole the gold and showed back, showed up back with the Golden Hind shows up back in uh, England. And he's got enough gold in there to pay off the entire national debt. Well, that's how you solve the usury problem. Looting. Yeah. Empire is always a, 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 always uh, uh, the, the, the mechanism that uh, allows usury. Because you need some source. That's why, that's why the Romans would go and conquer people. They steal their gold and then they pay off the debt and they go into debt again. You got to conquer more countries. That's the British Empire. What the British yeah. Empire learned was basically uh, uh, we're going to you're going to pay. We're not going to be like the Medici's because we have the British Navy. And if you don't pay up, we're going to send a ship down one of your big rivers and we're going to blow up your capital. And so you better pay up. And that's exactly the role that the British Navy played. Palmerson understand that the Don Pacifico affair was an example of that. Uh, uh, Palmerston, classic example of uh, an English aristocrat. He's got property in Ireland that he never visits. And in order to uh, live the high life in London, he borrows money on that property. And because he borrows money on that property, he has to grind the tenants, grind them so that he can extract more and more labor uh, out of these tenants. And then finally, when uh, he realizes it's not going to work anymore, he ships them all off to America naked. These, a lot of these tenants of Palmerston's uh, Irish estates showed up naked on Gros Eel. They didn't have clothes on their back. Yeah. Uh, crawl out of the ship onto the dock at Gros Eel, which is in the middle of the St. Lawrence River. To freeze to death on the dock because it's winter in Canada now. You don't want to be without clothing in uh, November in Canada. That was the type of ruthless exploitation of labor that had become institutionalized 
in the headquarters of capitalism, which is the British Empire, uh, which was based on the principle of state-sponsored usury. Well, well, now, now since you uh, you tackled that, why don't we talk about uh, la- laissez-faire policies and what that and what that caused essentially with uh, the, our poor Irish ancestors over there with the potato famine? Right. So, um, the big big power at this point, the big preoccupation of the British Empire, if we're talking about the 18th century, is France. They had already, in a sense, subdued Spain. Now France is on the block. And uh, there's a lot of exchange back and forth. And uh, one of the Englishmen uh, who goes over there is Adam Smith. Uh, He's a professor of moral philosophy at Edinburgh. Uh, He takes two of the uh, lairds. After the Jacobite Rebellion of 1745, the the adults were basically given the choice of going to uh, America as slaves or being hanged. Uh, but the children of the Laird were offered educations at Harvard and I'm not Harvard at uh, Cambridge and Oxford. And uh, Smith took two of these people over there. And at that point, he bumps into the Enlightenment, uh, the French version of the Enlightenment and uh, were the economic version of the le- uh, French version of the Enlightenment, which is laissez faire. So let it roll. Let the good times roll here. Just let everything take its natural course. Now, they were saying this because they were all influenced by Isaac Newton. Yep. And Isaac Newton came up with a, a, a model of the universe that didn't acquire any type of uh, intervention, either by God or by man. Those planets, they all, it, it was a pagan ideology based on love and strife. He got this from Empedocles. He called it gravity and inertia. And then Newt, uh, I'm sorry, Adam Smith baptized it or turned it into an economic system by calling it uh, competition and self-interest. Same thing. Uh, it creates circular motion. Circular motion is perfect. And so you don't intervene. Just let things go. Can, can I can I interject real quick? Just just real quick on the whole uh, Newton question. Uh, you, you mentioned in the book how his upbringing actually played a crucial role in his economics. I found that to be very, very fascinating with how he was abandoned by his mom. And how like all the the whole we're just all atoms and smacking into each other or avoiding each other like that that was very compelling to me. Yeah, he was also a usurer. <laughs> yeah, and, and 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 an alchemist. Right. So when he was a student at uh, he, he was poor because his mother was you know wouldn't give him any money. But uh, uh, when he went to where was he Oxford or Cambridge I believe he went to Cambridge he would lend money to fellow students so he was a usurer. And yeah. that came back. I'm saying I what I'm saying is that what he calls physics is really economics. He yeah. had an, he, he imposed a kind of capitalist system on the universe and called it physics. But it was really capitalist economics uh, based on the two competing principles of love and strife, which he got from yeah. Empedocles. So it was yeah. always an economic system. So it's no coincidence that after the glorious revolution, when the uh, the Protestants come together, they kiss and make up the, the roundheads and the cavaliers kiss and make up and become friends uh, because they hate the Catholics more than each other. Uh, and they have to expel the rightful Stuart uh, king and bring in this usurper uh, King Billy the Dutchman, uh, William of Orange, because he would allow usury. This is what this is what we're talking about. State sponsored usury. You could never count on a Catholic monarch 
to honor usurious contracts because there it's like uh, you can't have uh, criminal contracts. It's a contradiction in terms. You can't use the rule of law to enforce criminality. And so, but King Billy was a Dutchman and that was Holland and that was Calvinism. And he was all in favor of this type of thing, as long as you would give him enough money. And they did that. I'm talking about the Whig oligarchs now, uh, which included Sir Isaac Newton and John Locke, who collaborated on alchemical experiments. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, they uh, created the Bank of England. And the Bank of England became... uh, the, the epitome of state-sponsored usury. So basically, it was claimed to be the Bank of England. It's owned by Whig oligarchs, and all of the tax money now goes into their coffers, and they become immensely wealthy to the impoverishment of everyone else in England. That led to class conflict. That usury led to class conflict because the heart of class conflict is the conflict between the creditor and the debtor. Now, this is not some Marx, Karl Marx was too stupid. He was too besotted by his atheism (laughs) and hatred of God to understand that it really usury is the problem. It's not capital. It's like saying hammers are the problem because this lady down the street got killed by someone wielding a hammer. Or it's like gun control. It's the same type of thing. Okay, it's a kind of materialistic view of the world. And Marx missed the boat because he didn't understand it was usury. Usury is always sinful. Capital can be used in good ways and bad ways. But usury is always sinful. And so that's precisely what happened. Now you have uh, the state. You have the weak oligarchs flourishing in England beyond all press historical precedent. Okay, but there's a catch here, and this is why I deal with uh, Faust uh, in the barren metal, because that's the beginning of the consciousness of debt, uh, the consequences of debt. So you you sign your soul over to the devil. You get whatever you want. You can sleep with Helen of Troy, whatever. Oh, but wait, you got to pay it back. And that's when the devil shows up with your contract. You signed it. Now you go to hell. Well, that's what debt is. Basically, you get you get the money, you borrow the money, you can do whatever you want. You can buy anything. You got money. Oh, wait a minute. You got to pay it back. And so the bill came due, as it always does. Whenever you have a floating loan, it becomes unrepayable after 70 years. And so this is precisely almost to the day after the founding of the Bank of um, England, Lord Townsend realizes we can't pay it back. What are we going to do? So he calls in his friend, Adam Smith, and Adam Smith says, well, make the colonies pay it back. And that led to the American Revolution. And that's why we're Americans as opposed to Englishmen. Can we, can we go back? I, I think I kind of sidetracked you with the whole potato famine question. Can we uh, go back and cover that real quick? Yeah. Well, that's, that that's, that's laissez. We're going back to laissez faire now. Yeah. So there is, uh, it, it's what Newton, Newton came up with, uh, a universe where there was no providence. God, God retired from the universe or he was banned from the universe by Newtonian physics, which was completely self-sufficient. And that meant uh, just as you can't meddle with the universe, you, you can't stop those planets from moving in their orbits. And then atoms are just little planets. So you have this seamless kind of materialism that's spreading uh, with 
And so you have a, a materialistic economic system, which basically means we can't intervene. We can't intervene. I, 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 well, wait a minute. The Irish are starving to death because the potato crop has failed. Well, I, I, that, I'm sure that's terrible. I'm, I'm really sorry about that, but we can't intervene in the economic system. Now, the man who said this was a uh, Nassau senior, uh, an English economist who basically justified the starvation of the Irish people. So this is, we have economic laws. All of these economic so-called laws are basically nothing but a justification of the rights of the user or the rights of the landlord class. So at this point, Ireland is exporting food as the Irish are starving to death. Yeah, unbelievable. And that's that's the tragedy of capitalism. So, yeah. you, ha so you have people in a bind, you know, they were like uh, Queen Victoria, there were uh, uh, Quakers whose consciences were touched by this and they set up soup kitchens, but uh, no one could touch the, the economic system. No, no one could trace it back to the economic system because it had become this pseudo physic, pseudo physics uh, dogma at this point. And so yeah. people, people sorry, you'll just have to starve to death because we can't do anything about the iron law of wages or whatever, you know, that, that, that's, that, that's new, that's physics. We can't change it. Yeah, really, really deplorable. And by the time they uh, they did set up those soup kitchens, like, uh, something close to like a million people already perished. And then that, that I forget that one guy he wanted to send what cornmeal over there or something, and it was like he couldn't even digest it. Well, they, yeah, you had uh, one of the guys said, "Well, we'll bring corn from America." Well, corn is the dried corn. You know, it's the only way it could uh, transport. It was used as animal feed, but it yeah. was you have to. It, 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 the South uh, knew how to to cook it, it was turned into hominy or grits. Uh, and, uh, but you had to treat it with lye uh, before it would soften enough. So they just, the Irish, here's, a, here's an ear of corn. They tried to eat it and they got tremendous stomach pains because you can't digest that. This, the problem here was that Ireland had a monoculture and women uh, knew how to do one thing to provide for their families. They knew how to boil potatoes. That was it. They didn't. They, yeah. If you gave them a pound of flour, they wouldn't know what to do with it. Well, that's even worse when you give them something like alien, this alien idea of a maize from America, which has to be treated in a certain way. The people down south had figured that out, but apparently no one gave them the recipe. And so they, they couldn't eat it. They got tremendous pains from eating uh, uh, the untreated uh, maize from America. Yeah, yeah, that was really despicable. That was the that 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 particular part of the book really had me enraged. It's unbelievable. Um, there's there's a chapter on I think it's how do you say that? Paraguay, Paraguay, Paraguay. Yeah, that this this showed like that there there's another there's another way of doing things. So I found this chapter to be very compelling and uh, illuminating as well because this was like no usury. This was like work ethic, um, solidarity, and uh, the, the the end game of that and how everything was pretty uh, copacetic and cohesive at the end of the day. People were living well. Uh, they they were. Their work was fostering new births, and yeah, the, there wasn't a corruption. Could you uh, elaborate on that that chapter? Yeah, well, this is part of the Jesuit uh, mission to evangelize the world. So the Jesuits showed up in uh, America. Uh, they went to Quebec, 
in North America, but in South America, they went to what is now uh, Paraguay. And they marched off into the woods and, uh, you know, learned uh, to speak Guarani, which was one of the main ethnic groups there. There's a movie called The Mission, which tells this story from a, a particular point of view. It's a powerful movie. Uh, but basically, it, the, it, it, it's, it's, so the movie's accurate. You're saying I could watch that and not be deceived. It's worth watching. The end is ideological uh, and it's traceable to Dan Berrigan, the Jesuit who was hired as the advisor. But the story is is more or less accurate. The part about the Jesuit going off into the woods to meet with the savages, the Guarani, where, where he's playing the flute. You know, they're ready to shoot him. Uh, full of arrows and he starts playing the flute that is that is an accurate present an artistic representation of what the jesuits actually did so they go in they learn guarani unlike the presbyterians who forced the the micmac to speak english they wouldn't even speak french to the micmacs they learn guarani they write the guarani dictionary they write the guarani grammar and they start to build a civilization out of the basic default setting of mankind, which is hunter-gatherers, which is what the world was and what these people were. They were hunter-gatherers. And so there were cattle there, and uh, the Guarani would basically, two of them would go and kill a cow and, or a steer, and then they'd eat the whole damn thing. And then they'd get stomach pains, and they'd start up, and then they'd be all back again. They also had an alcoholic beverage that uh, was the requisite for uh, council meetings. So in order to have a real council meeting, you had to get drunk first. So needless to say, you didn't really come up with good, uh, good, uh, what should I say, decisions based on that. So they yeah. discovered uh, yerba mate. They discovered a new beverage, which you can still get. When I was in Argentina, which was w right near Paraguay, is probably the same area. Uh, I drank yerba mate all the time. It's just great. It's a great beverage, uh, like tea, but uh, I think more powerful. Anyway. That's the type of thing that they were doing. And they also got the Indians involved. The main thing that they did to the Indians was to teach them how to work. Now, that's not easy. That's not easy to do. And I'm saying I got, there are a lot of white boys out there who feel that they're superior to Africans. And they always point that the Africans must be genetically inferior to the rest, to the white people uh, because of the lack of civilization. And so I said to them uh, when I was in Tanzania, they gave me a brochure and it's a, a collaborative coffee effort uh, on the part of the Diocese of Würzburg and the Diocese of Mbinga. So Diocese of Mbinga, you look there, founded 1987, Diocese of Würzburg founded 740 something. So what's the difference? It's uh, over a thousand years of learning how to work which is exactly what Catholic missionaries, whether they were Benedictines along the Rhine, dealing with my Germanic ancestors, or yeah. Jesuits, Jesuits going to Paraguay, because these people don't know how to work. There is an element, you can't, in, the, work is programmed into the gospel with the parable of the sower. Now, yeah, this, we, is, this, is, this is not something that's easy to learn. It's not self-evident when you live in the rainforest or the Chaco or wherever you live, because you don't, if you plant, put that seed in the ground, you need faith. Faith that after your, your work there is going to bring some to, come to fruition. 
when the harvest comes in. And they didn't have it because they didn't do that. They basically went out, there's a cow, I'll kill the cow, we'll sit down and we'll eat the damn thing. The same thing applied to the um, Abnaki Indians in uh, the Gaspé Peninsula. The Jesuits would go off with them on the moose hunt. Well, you to kill a moose, you had to have snow that was waist deep first. Uh, and before that happened, you starved. And you and the Jesuits would starve with the people, and they had this contest where the medicine man is going to pray, and he doesn't get anything. The Jesuit prays, porcupine shows up, and they eat the porcupine. When it's waist deep, you get on your snowshoes, and you stab them, kill the moose, and then you sit down there, and you eat the whole damn moose right there. This is not uh, in the gospel. The gospel is not made for hunter-gatherers. It's made for an agricultural economy where labor leads to value through faith. Because you have to believe that your efforts, because when you put that seed, it doesn't happen overnight. The gospel is full of this type of thing. And so they taught the gospel by teaching these people how to grow things or to make things. And they built a society. They, they, they ended up making musical instruments. Within two generations, the Guarani were building viol making violins. And uh, this was a culture and eco economic system that was based on labor as the source of all value, no usury. Mm -hmm. And it could have been a model for the entire new world, but it was destroyed by the Freemasons. The Freemasons or the Protestants? Freemasons. Freemasons. It's a purely a Masonic thing. So uh, the, Free the Duc de, uh, uh, de Choiseul, uh, and the Marquis de Pombal from Portugal went to the Pope and they persuaded them to suppress the Jesuits. Yeah, this, right. this was a crime. Today, they should suppress the Jesuits. The Jesuits should be suppressed today. Uh, the Jesuits are the biggest problem in the Catholic Church right now, but they were not a big problem. They were the greatest thing that ever happened to the Catholic Church during the 16th, uh, 17th centuries. Yeah, yeah, that's something else that your book illustrates, because when I think of the Jesuits now, I just think of, like, you know, deranged sodomites. Right, right. Who that's why. Thought, who, who that's why thought, they should. You know, back then they were so efficient and they yeah. were so expedient. Right, and that's the whole story of what could have happened in America if uh, that Catholic experiment in Paraguay had not been strangled in the cradle by uh, Freemasons. Yeah, that was a very fascinating chapter, man. I, I really, yeah. I mean, most of the book is the the book. The the magnitude of this book, though, it's so large. It's like you can't help but you know you keep reading and reading. You you, you slowly forget certain certain like like for example the Benedictines. That's something I wanted to bring up 20 minutes ago because they were expedient in the uh, Germanic rise of uh, overall living standards and uh, work and all the other things that go along with that. Yeah, the Benedictines did to the uh, Germanic tribes that are my ancestors, exactly what the Jesuits did to the, the hunter-gatherers in, um, in Paraguay. They brought, yeah. gr they brought grapes uh, to grapes and fruit, fruit orchards, and planted them along the Danube. I rode down the Danube with a bunch of Germans, and we'd go from one Benedictine monastery to the other, and they were surrounded by fruit orchards and vineyards. That's the work of the Benedictines, taught them, taught the Germans that they didn't have to spend their lives chasing pigs through the forest. Germans love to chase pigs through the forest. Now, yeah, the, now, the, now the pigs are chasing Germans through the forest. Yeah. 
Do, do you think that we'd be where we are technologically and uh, artistically and um, just the overall standard that we're living now? Do you think that we would have reached this state without all the state-sponsored usury of the past We would century? be much more advanced than we are now. This is exactly what Cobbett said about the Reformation in England. There were enormous numbers of manuscripts with all kinds of inventions, uh, pregnant with inventions. It was Albert the Great, Albertus Magnus, who created science in Paris in the 13th century, and it was progressing through the monasteries, and it was destroyed by the English looters. They would, they would take illuminated manuscripts and trample them underfoot and use them to light their pipes. Pages, illuminated manuscripts. This is the testimony of Cobbett. And this is the testimony of the Reformation. So, fellas, I have nothing against Protestants, but uh, basically it's over. You had a 500-year run because of what your ancestors stole from the Catholic Church. It is now evaporated, and it's time to close the uh, the, the the book on this uh, failed experiment. Lots, you know, you talk about the 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 uh, whatever it was that the English Empire, brought, British Empire, brought about. Whatever it was, it's over, and we're going to have to go back to the the source that allowed that? it to happen in the first place. What, what wasn't Cobbett an Italian? Who Cabot or whatever wasn't that guy an Italian? Cobbett. No, no, he was an Englishman. William Cobbett. Because right, there's some Italian similar name. Sebast Sebastian Cabot. You're probably confusing him with Sebastian Cabot, who was a, a floor. Uh, I think he was a French explorer. But uh, no, I'm talking about Cobbett, William Cobbett. Okay, sorry. All right. Well, yeah, I don't know. I think everybody should read this book because there's only so much you can learn from listening to podcasts or listening yeah, to me I, uh, I would, focus I would on certain points. It's just right. it's such a broad book. It's so illuminating. It really puts things into perspective for me. It contradicts all these memes. People really need to uh, just repudiate these memes and do your own research, man, because you'll be astonished of how dishonest a lot of these memes are. Yeah, I, I especially my our Protestant friends. You really need to know this because Protestantism is basically an economic operation. I've I've actually grown really contemptuous of the Protestants after reading this book. Well, I don't want to be contemptuous of anyone, but I just want I just <laughs> I mean want they've to, done a lot of damage. They they've done a lot of damage. I think that the the Reformation had a 500 year run. Uh, it's over. The established churches in Scandinavia and Scotland and uh, England have all passed by the wayside. Uh, it's time to get back to the to to your Catholic roots, and this is a good way a good way to get it by reading uh, Baron Metal. I think it's the best way. Uh, I hope that the Protestant guy that I talked to, I hope he reads it because he he was very you know he's being drawn to the Catholic Church. He's got all of these prejudices that have been built up and he imbibed uh, as a as a he was a Southern Baptist. I mean that was a place that was basically anti-Catholic. Uh, and they didn't even know what they were talking about. They didn't even know what the Catholic, the Catholic Church that they were uh, protesting against. They didn't even know what they believed because they don't know the history of their own Reformation. They don't know yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, I'm a lapsed Catholic myself. I just find the Catholic Church currently to be insufferable and uh, paradoxical. 
So if we could get rid of all the infiltrators, the it's never going to happen. You're never going to find a Catholic church where everyone's perfect. That's why I'm we have confession. No, no, and there and there's something to be said about confession too. I, I'm not anti-confession at all. I think there's something to be said about confession. I'm talking about like the hierarchy, like all the, the sodomites, the all, all all the filth that's actually running things. I'm not talking about the congregates, the actual hierarchy. It we it needs to be cleansed. We need to get like yeah. Normal. We're in a similar situation to the right around the time of the Reformation. Where the situation in Italy was full of abuse, and the church will deal with this eventually, as they dealt with it in the Council of Trent. Because if they don't, if the church doesn't deal with it, it's not the church, because the church has been promised to exist. Uh, till the end of time by Jesus Christ, who's the man who founded it. So the solution is not jumping out of the ship, as they say in the gospel, because you die immediately. The solution is to stay in the ship until Christ wakes up and calms the storm. Well, TikTok, man, it's getting bad. <laughs> it's getting bad yeah. over here. So. All right. Well, I'm I'm gonna let you go. I don't want to, you know, suck up any more of your time. Look, I appreciate you coming on. Look, your your books have been expedient to my intellectual growth. So I salute you for writing these. I hope that you have more huge books coming in the future. I plan on re. I, I'm probably gonna read your Jewish Revolutionary Spirit in a Good. couple months, e Good. even though I vowed to not read another huge book this year because your book took me a little over two months actually to read, and and I read every day, twice a day. The book with the, the magnitude is just yeah, and, and you, you, there's no reading these books fast either. You read them fast and you just don't absorb them. So, but yeah, I I, def, I salute you for your endeavors and uh yeah, thank you for coming on. Uh, people should definitely read read your books. Go to culturewars.com. Um, stay in touch with them. Yeah, you you do good work. Thank you. You're, you're actually I, I can't think of anybody. Uh, who's better right now in our intellectual sphere in America? I, I really can't think of any way that really competes with you. Well, thank you. Thank you. So, yeah, you do good work. Thank you, and, uh, and God bless. Thank you. Okay. Goodbye. Bye-bye.